Alrighty. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'amaduhu wa nusalli ala rasulihil kareem. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. And we seek blessings upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So the goal here is to expand our Islamic thinking by way of philosophical texts. And so the source material, and I'll help us position how to understand all this stuff, is going to be the Socratic dialogues. And we'll go through these. Uh, and depending on how the conversations go, we will expand on them and such. But first, to give you a sense of what we're talking about, uh, the difference between the madrasa and the academy. So you have the madrasa, and by madrasa, I essentially mean the Islamic seminary. So obviously, madrasa is just a word for school. The madrasa and then the academy is essentially the Western University. The essential difference is that they are organized around two different questions. The madrasa is asking, what does Allah want from me? And how do I do it? What does Allah want? And how do I do it? How do I do it? Whatever it is that Allah wants. That's the central question of the madrasa. Okay? The central question of the academy is how does the world work? Okay. How does this thing that we call the world And so part of the philosophy then of the madrasa, based on that question, is essentially that to know what Allah wants, we have to know the primary sources. Which then means we have to define what the primary sources are. So semi-easy question in Sunni Islam, what are the primary sources? And I'll actually be impressed if you get this correctly. So the, the answer is in Quran and Sunnah then? Aha. Uh -huh. Because where do we get the Sunnah from? Um, we get the Sunnah from the Sahaba. So essentially, that which we call uh, a Sunni Islam, equals, it's the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, Notice I'm not saying Sunnah, I'm saying the Quran, the Prophet, peace be upon him. And a point to think about, part of what Sunni Islam is saying is that 100% of Islam came through the voice and actions of this one person, right? But it was narrated to us by the Sahaba. I mean... And thus, there's an implicit statement about the nature of the Sahaba there. That the Sahaba, with, you know, they're humans just like us, but they're completely loyal to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Right. But then it's not just the Sahaba. It's the Tabi'een and the Tabi Tabi'een. So the Sahaba are not only narrating the Quran and the Prophet to us, peace be upon him, they are also uh, occasionally in disagreement with each other. So when they're disagreeing with each other, that is also giving us some dimensions. 
Hashem. And then likewise, the Tabi Tabi, the Tabi, and the Tabi Tabi. This is Sunni Islam. And then all of that is in further temper to the legacy of scholars. Plus the legacy of the Ummah. Because then the scholars are now interpreting all of this. Now that which we call Shia Islam, it's a little bit different. Quran and Prophet, peace be upon him, but through whom? Through the Imams. So often we teach and we tell ourselves that the difference between Sunni and Shia is who should have been the Khalifa. That's not correct. The difference is on whom are we relying to learn about the Prophet, peace be upon him. And so in Jafari mainstream uh, um, 12 Shia tradition, it's a specific set of about a dozen imams, most of which is the first half of them. In Ismaili tradition, it's the imam tradition all the way continues through to today. And the slight difference that we as Sunnis often don't understand, they're not saying they're prophets, but they are saying that they are reliable in their interpretation of the prophet, peace be upon him. And thus they are sin-free and such. Okay. And then from there, legacy of the scholars. In a small interesting point, especially for mainstream Shia tradition, mainstream Sunni tradition, they read each other's books. Okay. Plus the legacy of the Ummah. Legacy of the Ummah from Shia tradition includes the Sunnis. Cool. All right. So these are the primary sources with emphasis on getting to know the primary sources. So, and then interpreting from there. Okay. Now, what does that then mean? So then what are the Islamic sciences? that form from this, this core question and core source material, you can categorize them as three levels. A will be the reference material. B will be the practical sciences. And C will be the abstract. Yeah. Reference material will be Arabic everything about the Quran. So it'll be the history of the compilation of the Quran. It'll be how to recite the Quran. It'll be tafsir, everything. Okay. And then everything about the Prophet, peace be upon him. And again, and I don't remember how much I used to say this back then in our class, you know, a decade ago, but you can't separate the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. On a shelf, you can, but everything is coming through him. So that's the reference material. And then the prophet in this context includes the Sahaba, the Tabi'in, 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 and such. And then the practical sciences are law, purification, going by many names, and then character. 
going by many names, character, manners, and such. These are the practical sciences. And in terms of, even though I've called it adab, uh, you put governance and all this too, siyasa. Some of it is kind of law, some of it is kind of character, okay, justice and such. Abstract will be history. Because yeah, think about it. You may know all the details of the sira of the prophet, peace be upon him, but it's not something you practice. You may derive a lesson from it. Now it's shifted to a different category. But <clears throat> history is all about the authenticity and the narratives of history, and then we might derive lessons from all that. Yeah. And then theology. Theology is probably the loosest term here. All of these terms are loose. Like I'm using law instead of sharia, right? Or thick. I mean, as is relevant, we'll answer these questions. Theology here I am, however, going to define. So theology includes aqidah, which is creed, which is what? If you believe the shahada, here's what else you believe. You know, so far and so on, right? I believe in Allah, the angels, the books, the messengers, so far and so on. And then things like the aqidah of Imam al-Tahawi, these are all the other things you believe. There's nothing like Allah, there's nothing like the likeness of Allah, stuff like that. Okay. And then you have usul ad-din. And this stuff, when you put it into actual books, it starts getting really, really uh, fluid. Usul ad-din is basically, you know, how does this, philosophically, how does this whole thing that we call Islam operate? really philosophical underpinnings, and then you have kalam, which generally is our answers to their questions. Kalam is where you'd find evolution, right? How do, we, how do we reconcile evolution with Islam? Do we need to? Do we not? All that stuff, right? It's a question coming from the outside in. Good. That is such a common question that Muslims need to know because otherwise it affects their deen. And by the way, uh, uh, any of you always feel free to interrupt, just like always in the past, you know, all that stuff is still the same. Too. And then philosophy is basically theology not limited by the primary sources. Too. So, so there's a, one of the big questions in academia is what is technically Islamic philosophy? Is it philosophy in Arabic? What is it? You know, but essentially the way I'm defining it for our purposes here, it's Speculation, it's abstract speculation, not limited by Quran and Sunnah, not limited by category A, okay? but it's still positioned within this thing we call Islam. So these are the major Islamic sciences. There are other Islamic sciences that you might be learning as part of all this. So within philosophy, you have logic, which then applies to the things in the first category and the second category and all those things. So if you look at how much writing takes place the vast majority of the writing is going to be the practical sciences you know especially law and so this is how the islamic sciences break down now what are they all basically about the islamic sciences um if we were to write this on reverse order where do these come from we have the primary sources right and so these all trace themselves back to Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him, trace themselves especially to surahs two and three. Okay. 
but the whole of the text. But if you go further, they all trace themselves back to Al-Fatiha, which then traces itself back to Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which then traces itself back to what? Um, I'm going to guess Allah. The Ba. The Ba. Okay. So what am I saying? That if you look at this in the reverse, so let's say we shrink this. The more thoroughly you understand the Ba, which is in, with, then you know the essence of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. The more thoroughly you understand Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, you understand the essence of Al-Fatiha. The more thoroughly you understand or know Al-Fatiha, you understand the essence of the rest of the Quran and the Prophet, peace be upon him. The more thoroughly you know that, you know the essence of the Islamic sciences. So when we're speaking of the Ba, in our language, in English, what are we basically saying? That the essence of the deen is connection. This is one of the meanings of deen, interaction. Okay. And then from there, connection with what? With Allah, and especially his Rahmah. And then from there, it's then further articulated in terms of the path. You alone, we worship you alone, we ask for help. And then you have the whole package and then you have it from there you know the sciences that develop from there so what we're saying is that the essence of the islamic sciences what is the goal the goal is to facilitate your connection to allah by way of allah's rahmah or another way to understand that is the goal of the islamic sciences is to appreciate the rahmah of allah to articulate the rahmah of allah So far, so good. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, no, uh, I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, there you go. Okay. Don't talk, man. No, okay. So, so then, <clears throat> that's the madrasa side. The academy side. Let's see if I can do a different color. We'll call it. Does that work? Yeah. Okay. So he said that the academy is answering the question, how does the world work? And so built into this is first the question of what do all these things mean? And so then the foundation of that is philosophy. And with philosophy, the strength of philosophy is in asking questions and in critiquing answers. Philosophy is not strong in answering questions, but it's very strong in asking them and critiquing them in terms of giving categories and trying to make sense of them or not. Okay. And then the primary philosophy 
historically was called natural philosophy. What is that called today? Anybody know? Common sense? I don't know. Science. Science. Now, what is part of the message of science is that the world operates in patterns that we can identify. And so then knowledge gets categorized. So in terms of the academy sciences, we said you'll have philosophy at the core. And then you will have science. And then so you will have the natural sciences which basically is saying biology that there's identifiable patterns in how life operates and then within that you'll have zoology and and everything else right the sciences of life the natural life sciences so chemistry physics And others, these are the big ones, right? Geology and such. So these are the academy sciences. Another term for the natural sciences is that we'll often speak of them as today, the core sciences. And then <clears throat> you'll have the human sciences. This is a bit newer in human history. And so the argument of the human sciences is that humans behave in patterns. Okay. So, for example, uh, historically, one was considered the first one was anthropology, which is sort of like the study of culture. And we might call culture adat. Ada. Right? How would you translate ada? Or adat, either from Urdu or Arabic. Like a habit. Habit. Yeah. habit. Yeah. So here's just what people do. Here's what people in this village do when it's time to eat. Here's what people in this village do when they're when they're mingling. Yeah. Or you will have things like how do people organize? Yeah. Or you will have how do people deal with material scarcity? So these are all human sciences. Some people will put the uh, history as a human science. Okay. So these are sort of the big ones. Psychology is probably the newest out of all of them. Here's how people behave. And then even like within biology, you might say of the human uh you know, the, the life sciences with the human anatomy, physiology, things like that. Okay. Everything that does not fit into a science is basically art. So that's literature, 
what we might today call the fine arts. Yeah. Where's math? Where'd you put it? Math would be at the top along with philosophy. So again, what is the core of the academy? The academy is saying, how does the world work? Okay, our primary tool is to first define things and then from there to, to find patterns. And then that means science. And then science is usually categorized in the core sciences and the human sciences. Like political science would be one of the human sciences, so to speak. Yeah. And everything else that doesn't fit as a science is basically art or literature. So you have commonly the College of Arts and Sciences. Okay, any questions about all this? Um, does commerce, oh, that falls under the economics, like business and- Potentially, so we might call those applied. So a lot of these will have applied fields. So just like you have applied math, theoretical math, you know, so think of medicine as an applied thing. So yeah. And this stuff isn't just like I was saying, like in the left side, category C, things get really, really loose in terms of this. Is this technically a Kalam book, a Suluddin book or what have you? Even the, the academy sciences also go through their, their evolution. So, for example, what do you get when you mix biology and chemistry? Biochem. <laughs> Biochemistry or molecular biology. Oh, what do you get when you mix chemistry and physics? Time Thermodynamics. Travel. I'm sorry, what are you saying, Fezan? I was saying time travel, but I didn't. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> if you mix, bi mix biology and physics, you get biophysics, right? And so the point is that these things also evolve uh, through time in identifying patterns. So the evolution is just another way of looking, uh, another attempt at looking at a pattern, but this time of life. Evolution, or... evolution is interpretation of data. Interpretation basically of data. Say, basically saying that, all right, we see all these common features among these animals. Uh, that's how it is at first. Now we even find patterns in terms of where <coughs> the earliest fossils seem to appear. So I forgot the name of the book. We can look it up. There's this uh, UFC evolutionary biologist guy named uh, Neil Shubin, S-C-H-U-B-I-N, I believe. And he has this whole book about this fish where he was looking at evolutionary patterns and then concluded that based on these patterns, in this tiny region, by tiny I'm saying six foot by six foot, we must find this one particular type of fossil. And they found it. Right. So it's a very solid interpretation of data. Okay. Another is the Big Bang. Big Bang is an interpretation of data. Like we have all of this data of like the oldest, oldest things that have reached us about the universe. Like, you know, with the James Webb telescope, they're all saying, hey, these photos, these galaxies, the light, the galaxies actually were seeing what it looked like 14 billion years ago. That's how long it took for the light to reach us. Yeah. So we don't even know what the galaxy looks like now. And so we can then categorize how old some of this light is 
which then can give us a sense of some evolution of the universe, but then it's an interpretation of data. And here's the fun thing. What is the form of the Big Bang? You have this one starting point, and then this trigger and everything spreads out from there. That's evolution too. Where does that come from? Christian preachers. And then we come along and say, oh, you know, you have Surah Dukhan, you have such and such and such and such. It fits. No. But it's, it's, it's interpretation of data, no. which may not be the most accurate interpretation of data. Yeah. What is it called? Yeah, discuss your, your, like your inner fish. Yeah. Okay. Any questions about all this? So on the one hand, so essentially what I'm saying is that when it comes to knowledge, we have two different paradigms that you and I are all parts of. And I don't know if you can reconcile the left with the right. You can fit the left into the right. How? So if you're doing the academic study of Islam, you're looking at how does this thing called Islam work? Not with the intention of practicing. Or you can fit the right into the left as knowledge is beneficial and it can, uh, it can inform you when you're thinking of fatwa. It can inform you when you're thinking of tazkia, because you can add psychology and all those things. But it's akin to even, for example, in the medical sciences, you're not going to go to a dentist. You know, like it's like, okay, you're playing basketball. This guy passes out. Hey, is there a doctor? Yeah, I can, I can, I can help. Okay, is, what's wrong with this guy? Well, his teeth are perfect. You know, see what I'm saying? So it also doesn't mean that they have to be reconciled. They're different methods of thinking. But one of the benefits that the right can give to the left is to stretch our minds. So we're going to be looking uh, at philosophical questions. And it'll make the most sense as we actually engage with the text. So let's talk a little bit more about philosophy. <laughs> And again, feel free to interrupt at any points. What's the Arabic word for philosophy? It's like one of the lamest words. Falsafa. Oh, snap, yeah. Yeah. Like one of the profound things about the history of Arabic <clears throat> is that you would usually not coin the term according to what it sounds like, you would literally come up with the word, right? You know, sciences of people. But, I mean, a lot of modern Arabic is, let's just, okay, demokratia, right? I mean, it's just like, let's just make it sound, because we're all, you know, it's modern era, we're all lazy, and we all suck. Okay, so, so essentially philosophy, um, philosophy is actually all over the world, but the most famous, of course, are the Greeks. Yeah. And then among the Greeks, the way it's often categorized is first you have the pre-Socratics. And then they get followed by the big group of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Uh, so Socrates is Plato's teacher, Plato is Aristotle's teacher, who is... Aristotle's most famous student. Anybody know? Alexander the Great. 
Okay. And the easiest way to think of them is think of Maududi and Dr. Israr. It is not that Dr. Israr is replacing Maududi. It's like he's adding to Maududi. Oh, mashallah, movement-oriented thinking. Okay, <laughs> very nice. Yeah. yeah. Now, nearly 100% of everything we know about Socrates is actually through Plato. Okay. I think you could probably even argue that maybe Socrates never existed. And how do we know whatever it is we know about Socrates? I mean, it's not just through Plato, but through others. We know through these dialogues. That's the dialogues will be named after a student that Socrates is having a conversation with about a particular topic. And usually each dialogue is related to some different question. Okay. So these are called the Socratic Dialogues. Plato's major book is called Republic, which is like the utopian society. Whereas Aristotle, he's doing something different. He's literally just mapping out knowledge. So imagine this whole screen. This is Aristotle. This is how he operates. Okay. Now, what you'll find very fascinating, maybe you already know this, as much Islamic sciences is literally just building on Aristotle. If you were to remove Aristotle from the history of the world, the world would be a different place, including our own Islamic sciences. And what is the key point there? Like, you know, we were saying, what does the right give to the left and vice versa? Philosophy is very strong. We said a critique knowledge and it's very strong at categorizing things. So Aristotle comes along, gives categories to help make sense of things and such. The first dialogue we're gonna look at is called Euthyphro. So that's the document that I gave. And it's literally Socrates and Euthyphro run into each other. Uh, and we'll see this. Euthyphro is leaving court. Socrates is entering court. And like, hey, what you doing here? What's up, bro? And so Euthyphro has his whole story for why he went to court. Socrates has his whole story of why he went to court. And the short version of all of the, of the Socratic dialogues for Plato because you might be familiar with some of this, is, is that Socrates is being accused by people of bid'ah, okay. of inventing gods, of offending the gods, of heresy, of innovation. Some, some dogs literally says innovation. And then the whole arc of his dialogues, starting basically from Euthyphro all the way until the end, apology, is that, or maybe Crito, is that he gets tried, he gets convicted, and then sentenced to death you know, for Bida. Okay. Euthyphro, we're going to see he has his own issue going on. But in each of these dialogues, there's usually like one key question. The question in Euthyphro that we're going to see is, what is piety? Now, keep in mind, we said soccer, that Plato, that philosophy is strong in asking questions. It is not strong in answering them. In none of these dialogues does he answer the questions, okay. which is going to be fun for us because we're going to try to answer these questions as we would. And when I'm saying we, we're positioning ourselves as Muslims 
in Chicago in 2022, 1444. So not just how in Islam would we answer these questions, you know, if we were to rewrite this as a conversation, I don't know, between Muzaffar and one of you, like, uh, and it's taking place right now, how would we re rewrite it? So these are all dialogues. They're like little short plays. Any questions? Okay. Let's, uh, so you have a copy of Euthyphro in front of you. Let's jump into this. And even the question of what is piety, we're going to get to that when we get to it, inshallah. So let's, uh, let's have, uh, who here should play Socrates? Let's have Mokid play Socrates. And let's have uh, uh, Amon be Euthyphro. All right. I know Omar's at work, so I just want to double check if he's okay to, to do that. Are you okay? No. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, All right. That works. Okay. She's on? You want to you be Socrates? Yeah, I can do it. All right, inshallah. Okay. All right. So, so in the text, persons of the dialogue, Socrates and Euthyphro. Scene, the porch of King Archon. That's basically they're at the courthouse. So let's say they're in DuPage County at the courthouse. One's walking in, one's walking out. I mean, that's the Lyceum. All right. Go for it, Euthyphro. And I'm just going to interrupt at random points. No problem. Why have you left the Lyceum, Socrates? And what are you doing in the porch of the King Archon? Surely you cannot be concerned in a suit before the king like myself. Not in a suit, Euthyphro. Impeachment is the word which the Athenians use. Okay, so what's going on so far? They run into each other. Euthyphro is like, why are you here? You're obviously not filing a lawsuit. You know, and so what's going on? And then Socrates says, no, it's not a lawsuit. It's impeachment. They're trying to get rid of me. Yeah. What? Continue. I suppose that someone has been prosecuting you, for I cannot believe that you are the prosecutor of another. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Certainly not. Then someone else has been prosecuting you? Yes. And, and who is he? A young man who is little known, Euthyphro, and I hardly know him. His name is Melitus, and he is of the Demi of Pythis. Perhaps you may... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, keep going. Yeah, don't worry about... Perhaps you may remember his appearance. He has a beak and long, straight hair and a beard which is ill-grown. Oh, snap. Okay. You ever seen a guy with a beard that's like all really long and just ill-grown? Okay, continue. (laughs) No. I do not remember him, Socrates. But what is the charge which he brings against you? What is the charge? Well, a very serious charge which shows a good deal of character in the young man, and for which he is certainly not to be despised. He says he knows how the youth are corrupted and who are their corruptors. I fancy that he must be a wise man, and seeing that I am the reverse of a wise man, he has found me out and is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. And of this, our mother, the state, is to be the judge. Of all of our political men, he is the only one who seems to, who seems to me to begin in the right way, with the cultivation of virtue in youth. Like a good husbandsman, he makes the young shoot 
his first care and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. This is only the first step. He will afterwards attend to the elder branches. And if he goes on as he has begun, he will be a very great public benefactor. Okay, one of the questions to think about as we're going through this is Socrates, is he being satirical or is he being straightforward? And that's a question that you know we'll keep exploring. So piece by piece, what is the charge that Socrates is saying? What do you all see here? Corrupting the youth. Yeah, corrupting the youth, right? That's a famous story attributed to Socrates. So he says he knows how the youth are corrupted and who are they corrupted. So he must be pretty smart. So, and seeing I'm the reverse of a wise man, okay, he has found me out and is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. Why would Socrates be calling himself the reverse of a wise man? I mean, it could be that he's humble. What else? Is he, in fact, being sarcastic? So it's possibly that. What else? Could be sarcastic, could be satirical. Is he quoting what somebody is charging him with, potentially, or, or potentially. calling him? So, so keep all these as theses as we're going through. A point for your consideration is maybe he's saying that uh, this kid knows better than I do. Or this kid thinks he knows better than I do. Right? This is the combination of my office of 20-year-olds. You know, have no qualms about disagreeing with me. Like, all right. Okay. You know. And if I was so smart in corrupting the youth, then uh, I'd probably be getting away with it. Okay. So he has found me out is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. And this, our mother, the state. Keep this language in mind. Because uh, this is an era of a type of city-state, nation-state, right? Much of world history in between then and the 20th century has been empires, right? Empires and city-states. I think of Dubai as still a city-state. Uh, but the language of how a state operates is a state often takes on the role of being your parents. Okay. And think of everything that your parents do. You know, not just limit Islam, right? They're providing for you. They're taking care of you, all that stuff. And that's what the state does, right? It's providing for your welfare. Yeah. So our mother, the state. Now, tell me about the word ummah. When we think of the ummah, what is the ummah? Like Anybody? mother, right? Seems like it's connected to mother. Uh, Fazan, you'll be our official Arabic scholar. Tell us about anything you can about the word ummah. Well, it comes from the same I, I, letters. I like how he, he like nods. <laughs> yeah, I will be the Arabic scholar. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's all I got. It comes from the same root letters. Um, yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> okay, so that is a theory, right? That right. this relationship you have with the Ummah is akin to the relationship you have with your mother. May or may not be. Maybe more philosophical than grammatical. Hmm. But if we look at the Ummah through the lens of it being akin to your mother, what is that saying then about our relationship to the Ummah? How would you answer that, all of you, any of you? We, we come from it, and it takes care of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's our root. And keep this point in mind when you think of how many in our community regard the Ummah. 
Yeah, kind of what I think is kind of like how we interact with one another then if you consider ourselves from a single umma mm -hmm. in terms of like how we, a lot of times in the communities tear each other down. Yes. Um, instead of respecting it, uh, we use this kind of uh, analogy of how it's like the mother. Mm -hmm. And we need to take care of the umma ultimately. Yes, that's exactly the point I'm leading to. That very often we regard the umma almost like as a burden. Some will regard it as our tribe, right? So you feel good when Habib is beating the hell out of Connor, right? Yeah, you all start smiling because you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, strict response, I have no idea what you're speaking about, you know. But, um, but yeah, uh, sometimes you'll have the notion of which is essentially like wilaya and uh, immunity. So basically, you have this type of obligation to the ummah uh, to take care, to stand up for. And then you also are immune from the wrongs that it does. Uh, sometimes you'll have the language of tribalism that I said with my Omar, right or wrong, as though we wanted to dominate. But think of it in a philosophical sense, akin to how we look at or how we're supposed to look at our mothers. Yeah. And especially this point that ultimately we need to take care of it. I mean, so I've been talking a lot, you know, and some of you have been in conversations about just how I'm watching my own parents decline. And it's almost like I feel like you're learning how to take care of your own children as a preparation for taking care of your parents. In our community, in American Islam, it's the opposite. It's, okay, your parents raise you. They, they, they take care of your education to some degree, depending upon their financial situation. And then you go move somewhere else, right? And so what is going to be the near future of that? It's going to be the rise of Muslim nursing homes. I mean, I think there's one on Lawrence right now. There's, it looks at nursing home quality. Is it a thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's there. Yeah. And so, so it's one thing if you actually can't handle taking care of your parents. But more often than not, our society, you know, regards the aging as a burden. And so we internalize a lot of that. Yeah. When that can actually be our key to paradise. Is that on your butt season? I was going to say, so... Um... Thinking back, going expanding from the root letters thing. So, so his his wording of like calling the state like the mother, um, and you connecting it to ummah. So I'm thinking like the word um as well in regards to um, like ummul kitab. It's like it, it has to do with judgment. It has to do with mm -hmm. like a system. And mm -hmm. so um, I feel like there's I, I'm just connecting it to some other things as well. So I I've, I see this recurring theme, a common denominator between mother and like mm -hmm. ummah and, and things mm -hmm. like that. This notion over and over again of the root, right? Umul Kitab, what's the core of it? It's the mother of the book. Umul Hadith, what's the what's Umul Hadith? Which hadith? The, the hadith of the Hadith of Jibril, oh. right? That's often nicknamed Umul Hadith, right? But this idea that everything you have is rooted in something which is rooted in something which is rooted in something, which is like the drawing that I gave you, right? Tracing everything to the bottom, right? And sometimes the bar for some people might be getting too philosophical. At least you can trace everything to Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, right? And so, so that is also the similar point of everything is rooted. Now, let's take this a step further. So he says, and of this, our mother, the state is to be the judge. Of uh, all our political men, he is the only one who seems to me to begin in the right way, right? No one else seems to have, have an issue with what I'm teaching. Just him. So he's raising that as, as peculiar. With the cultivation of, uh, of virtue in the youth, 
like a good husband, he makes the youth shoot his first care. The young shoots his first care and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. This is only the first step. He will afterwards attend to the elder branches. And if he goes on as he's become, he'll be a great, very great public benefactor. I do feel he is being kind of satirical. But let's think about this. Um, <clears throat> in terms of contemporary Islam in Chicago, and I'm probably either the perfect guy or the absolute wrong guy to answer this question. Uh, how do you address something if somebody's doing something wrong? We don't have a courthouse. We don't have a Sharia court. What do we do? Would, would you say to follow the, the Hadith of when you see someone doing something wrong? Is that the ideal way that well, we should going. Uh, can, can continue with the Hadith? Uh, I might be misremembering it, but if you see someone doing something wrong, you should stop it with your hands. And if you can't do it, then stop it with your words. And the lowest, and I think the after is the lowest level of Iman. If you can't do that, yeah. it's the you hate it in your heart. Yeah, so uh, change it with your hands. And if you can't, change it with your tongue. If you can't feel bad about it in your heart. Okay. Now, think about this hadith a couple of different ways. One, when we're talking about something wrong in society. Okay. That if you don't have the capability of physically changing things, at least potentially speak against it. Okay. And if you don't have the capability of speaking against it, one way to read it is that you should make dua in your heart against it. Okay, that's the weakest. Now, flip it. Rather than looking at society, look at yourself. If you see something wrong within yourself, change it with your hands. If that you're not able to do, what does that literally mean? Change your habits. Change your location. Like the guy who killed 99 people. Right, goes to the, the monk, monk's like you're doomed, kills him. Goes to the scholar, the scholar says, Yeah, you have hope, you got to get out of there. It's making you crazy. And then, if you can't change it with your hands, change it with your tongue, which is dua of God in that context. Okay. And if that you can't do, then feel bad about it in your heart. Yeah. So, this is also a changing your own self. And so, so now that's the conceptual aspect. In Chicago in 2022, how would you address a Socrates? Let's say you recognize this guy is doing something wrong. How do you do it? Now we're turning the question into action. For me, I would say I think now in 2022, a lot of it is more speaking against it. So a lot of people either post something or say something in like circle groups. So I feel like that's the norm now is to speak against it mm -hmm. um, more so because a lot of people might feel they can't do anything physically. Mm -hmm. So speaking against it is usually the, the first way. Mm -hmm. So a way to think about this, what does a courthouse have? Judge. It's a judge and it has uh, authority. It has coercive power. Mm. <clears throat> So you want to see where in the community, what type of coercive power is there? And that could be the people who are controlling the pulpit, which might be the board of a masjid. What? Not the whole song. Okay, so... 
It could be who has coercive power. It could be the people who are controlling the pulpit, controlling the job, which might be the board of a masjid. If the law is being broken, then you can go to the police, right? Then you can actually go to the physical courts. Or maybe the best power you have is ostracism, you know, to, in a particular community, keep somebody out. But keep this point in mind because this is what affects the faith of people. That if there's something wrong and nothing is being done about it, then that challenges the integrity of the entire project that you have a route to go to. So, for example, on campus, you have the common, the constant issue of non-consensual contact, right? Uh, or a guy says something inappropriate to a woman, a guy touches a woman inappropriately, even if it's a touch or something far, far, far worse. And then for a lot of the women, it's the university's not going to do anything about it. What's the point? Right? Or think of a lot of activism. Yeah, no one's going to listen. What's the point? And that's what challenges the integrity of the whole system. Is there confidence that in the coercive power, if there is any, that anything can happen? Yeah. And that's a major, major point in the health of a community in the long term. So if you don't have that confidence that something can be done, it may not affect your iman, but it will affect the iman of other people. and their ability to sustain. Last point, uh, let's start with this next question, this question for next time, so someone note it down. So he talks about teaching the youth. What's being mentioned here is teaching them virtue. So I want you to try to imagine, hypothetically, you writing a curriculum for parents. Uh, what would you teach them, uh, have them teach their kids at different ages? Be as specific or as general as you want. Is this an assignment? Yeah. Or you, yeah. Okay. you don't have to write it all. You don't have to write like a prose report or anything. Just think about it. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I just texted it to all of you. Perfect. Okay. Do, do you uh, um, do you mean from, is it, I mean, this might be getting into it and you want us to just think about it, but more from a philosophical or religious perspective or just in general, let us figure it out, whatever. It's up to you. It's okay. entirely up to you. Let's say you run a full-time Islamic school or let's say you run a Sunday school. Imagine the curriculum. Or you have kids age zero. And so we have our whole system of our society. So zero to grade 12, or you just want to do uh, elementary school. That's up to you. What's being mentioned here is the teaching of virtue. And so what I'll add to that for your consideration is the financial, the, the fundraiser hadith that everyone always quotes. But I mean, there's the I everyone quotes, you know, if you donate one, likeness is 700, but then what? The three things that'll still sustain you after you've died. Sadaqajadeh, you write something, or you raise upright children. Yeah. So think about that as well. All righty. Any questions about anything at all? Just, just question in terms of the class. I, sorry if you answered this earlier, if I joined a little bit late. Um, is uh is this the going to be the typical time and just form the method of doing the class Zoom on Mondays at seven or is that's that still uh, up in the air? That's that's tentatively yes. You know, I mean, it took us a while for me to get us started just because I, I had to get the the tech going and it was literally right after Maghrib, so Maghrib is going to be getting earlier. But right now, Monday seven to eight works pretty well for me. Cool.
but I mean, this is all uh, negotiable, inshallah. Yeah, I'd love to discuss at some point, um, and we can do this offline, inshallah, to see if I know uh, like half of us are, are in one place, and then um, depending on where you are, um, we can potentially move this to in person as well, because I feel like there's sure. a lot of benefit too. I mean, I always prefer things to be in person. Yeah. Uh, the difference, however, is Zoom always starts on time, right? Yeah. And that's just the human experience, you know. So uh, anything, time we can do stuff in person, I prefer. And then if uh, you all want to do other sessions too, you know, so think of today is going to be philosophy. And then like, so for example, you know, you all know Tawsif, right? Yeah. You know, so like with him, uh, he and I do Gulistan together, which is a lot of fun. And we're doing that also through the lens of being a chaplain. You know, Gulistan is like chicken soup for the soul. But it's disguised as advice for kings. And so I'm happy to do even more of these sessions. You know, I, I just love doing all this stuff. You know, and I think you guys love learning all this stuff. So it's a, you know, mashallah. So it's a, I'm happy to do more sessions. Now that we're getting this, let's make, let's see, yeah. let's get this solidified. We can add more sessions for whatever your ambitions are, inshallah. Yeah, definitely. As long as you keep mentioning Moldudi, I think we're, we're in a good spot. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, I know, I know, I know how to get these old YM people who never seem to have grown out of YM. You know, it's still <laughs> your, 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 your email addresses are still blah, 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 YM. It's like, brah, when you're no longer going to be young. I, yeah. I actually have a quick question about these because wasn't um didn't he i mean i know we're all over time but um i wasn't uh, the one of it the biggest um he got a lot of heat for criticizing the sahabas right and okay. because they were a primary source or considered primary sources right the, i or, mean so in a nutshell it all uh, from my understanding it's been a while it's all gets traced back to his book khilafat or mulukiyat hmm. And he was critical of some of the choices that Uthman made. I don't think he was actually critical of, of Sahaba. Oh, okay. I think he's far more orthodox than anybody gives him credit for. Right. Um, but as a historical exercise, he was looking at those first generations and how things played out. Oh, okay. Another version of that is Taha Hussein. I've been going through Taha Hussein's biography of you know, the first 30 years with uh, Dr. Isa uh, up in Evanston, although he's part of the Barrington Masjid. And it's it's a, a profound book, but it's a work of literature. It's not a work of history. He says it's not a work of history. I'm not a historian. But he's uh, providing his assessment of things, you know, and some of the things he says are very bitter pills to swallow. But he defends them very, very well. You know, I mean, usually what happens is these mass criticisms uh, people actually don't read what's what's being said. And then if they do, they're not actually considering the point that's being made. So anything else? Um, no, right. nothing in my end. Uh, inshallah, just some housekeeping. So yeah, we're going to make a WhatsApp group. Um, so yeah, Shazan, if you want to go ahead and do that, that would be great. And then um, inshallah, I'll, I'll, uh, if you want to be in our group, uh, Professor Omar, then of course you can be in as well. Um, and if, I'll probably um, just send memes. We can send notes. I was going to send some notes. I have some notes actually on Um and Umma awesome. from like years ago. So I was going to send them. I just, I don't remember them, but uh, I appreciate uh, the discussion. I think everybody feels comfortable talking and asking questions. So I think that's, that's yeah. wonderful. Um, and I really like the notes as well. So I'll, and I'll post like once I get the recording notes that we can, yeah. we'll have it in one place as well. I'll figure, it out. I'll figure it out. Like I always forget. And then I remember how to send like the link so you can all have access to the, the one note. 
right? Cool, yeah. And I'll no just worries. continue it as one long document. Yeah. Alrighty. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. Okay, it's been very nice to see you all again. It's nice for all of us to, to be back together. And uh, may Allah reward you all, inshallah. And at some point, we'll probably have to restart the Jazakallah circles and everything. And uh, otherwise, uh, we'll see you again, worst case scenario, on next Monday, inshallah. Inshallah. Salaam wa rahmatullah. Salaam wa rahmatullah. Salaam wa rahmatullah.